More coincidences in the Delphi investigation, more information on the Alec Murdoch timeline that comes out in a federal courtroom, Lorraine Vallow and Chad Day-Bell update, Adventures with a Purpose founding members charged with a very serious crime, a follow-up on that high school teacher that just loves his kids, and then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that bell so you receive notifications. And as always, leave me a comment below. And remember, you can listen to us anytime on your favorite podcasting app. All right, before we get to the docket for November 10th, 2022, that's right, it is the Marine Corps birthday. Happy birthday, Marines. Semper Fi. All right, first on the docket. Now, Richard... Allen has been charged with the murders of 14-year-old Liberty, Libby, German, and 13-year-old Abigail, Abby, Williams. Um, in October of this year, very little information has actually been made public. Even the location of his current uh, location is really secret, other than we know he is being held in the Department of Corrections there in Indiana. And we also brought you this news the other day that Allen recently requested a public defender in a letter to the the court stating that he didn't anticipate the cost of a private defense counsel. If you watch uh, yesterday's video, we'll have a link to that. You can see the uh, letter in its entirety. Now, he initially said he would obtain an attorney uh, during his initial hearing last month, but once you realize the cost, it's, it's expensive. It really, really is. Well, some more coincidences. All right. Remember Keegan Klein? He's the uh, Indiana man charged with numerous child-related offenses and uh, is linked to the investigation of the Delphi murders. His attorney has now asked the judge overseeing his case to delay the trial because of ongoing negotiations with law enforcement, which is a tip. Usually it's ongoing negotiations with the district attorney. So when you throw in law enforcement, it makes you think that you're cooperating with law enforcement. Okay. Now, if you've read the transcript of Mr. Keegan Klein, my guess is his memory is going to get a lot better here real soon. He didn't remember a lot of stuff during that interview. My guess is he's going to have a, a, a sudden memory as to who was logging into his Anthony Schatz account trying to groom these young ladies. Okay, for all the people that are offended that I said, ladies, these young girls, okay? So, well, Klein's trial uh, was uh, set to begin in January of 2023, and uh, through the motion filed by his attorney, he requested the trial be pushed back into May of some time of next year. The uh, motion stated that the parties uh, are currently engaged in negotiations and they want to continue it. And the uh, district attorney was contacted regarding the motion. It's not uncommon. You usually have to state the opposing party's position in your motion so the court knows whether it's opposed so they can set a hearing or unopposed so that the court can just rule on what they refer to as the paper. And in this case, the prosecutor has no objection. Now, the police have theorized in an interview with Mr. Klein that um, someone was using one of Mr. Klein's profile, the Anthony Schatz profile, and is alleged to have spoken with uh, Miss German on the day that she was killed. He reportedly had told someone else that the girl never showed up to a planned meeting. Now, Klein 
has disclaimed any involvement in the slains, but allegedly acknowledged that the online discussion in an interview with law enforcement. Now, the FBI raided and searched his home just 11 days after the girls' bodies were found back in February of 2017. He was questioned again and charged back in August of 2020. Now, Klein told investigators, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I don't have anything to do with it. And the cops said, yeah, that's just a weird coincidence. Like that happened that you talked to her just like that. Like I said, there's a 194-page transcript here. And the uh, police officers note, as I have noted, there are no coincidences in criminal defense, okay? The cop says, wow, what a coincidence. Says that several times to him. Maybe it is just a coincidence that his trial is getting delayed and he's linked to the Delphi investigation. Well, I bring up the word coincidence to the person who left me the comment that Mr. Klein's dismissal of charges and delays has nothing to do with Delphi. And if you knew anything about anything, you would know that you're an idiot there, Mr. Scott Reich. I can take it. But I've also done this a long time and we don't have all the facts. But the prosecution needs Mr. Klein for their prosecution if their theory is that he ran these Anthony Schatz accounts and he was using it to communicate with the girls. Yes, that's right. There's a thing called the rules of evidence that you have to comply with to get things into uh, evidence at a trial. Hearsay and speculation about who had access to the account. Guess what? The police don't get to get up there and theorize about that on the witness stand. They need the person who can say it was their account and who had access to it and identify who the other account would be. That's right. You don't, that stuff just doesn't miraculously come into evidence, everybody. So for the person who called me an idiot, you're right. I probably am one, okay? But I bet you I've done more trials than you have. Just saying. Next on the docket, while Alec Murdoch is not criminally charged in the case against Russell Lafitte that has been brought by the United States government, he is clearly an unindicted co-conspirator in the case of the former CEO of the Palmetto State Bank, which is currently being tried in Charleston, South Carolina. Prosecutors allege that Mr. Lafitte aided Mr. Murdoch in several financial schemes, allowing him to misuse and deposit nearly $2 million that belonged to his clients. That's a pretty big theft. The three basic rules to be an attorney is uh, one, communicate with your client. Uh, two, don't steal their money. And three, don't sleep with the client. If you can do that, guess what? You're probably not going to get disbarred. It appears as though Mr. Uh, Murdoch uh, failed to communicate with his clients like, hey, we settled your case. And two, he stole their money. So two out of three got him disbarred. All right. Mr. Lafitte uh, was Mr. Murdoch's point of contact and apparently served as Mr. Murdoch's personal banker. Now, the trial obviously focuses on Mr. Lafitte's alleged crimes, and witnesses are providing a little new information about Mr. Murdoch's mindset at the time of the June 7th, 2021 double homicide. For those who aren't familiar, Mr. Murdoch has pled not guilty to two counts of murder and two counts of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime in connection with the murder that day of his wife, Maggie, and their son, Paul. Well, Gene Seconder, the CFO of Murdoch's family law firm, PMPED, they've since rebranded for obvious reasons and now known as the Parker Law Group, told jurors that last June, the law firm was worried about Alec Murdoch potentially hiding money from his legal work after Paul had been charged in connection with the deadly boat crash. Why? Because they 
didn't want to give it away to the victims in the crash. And the youngest, Murdoch, was awaiting for trial uh, for the uh, boating under the influence uh, accident that killed his friend, 19-year-old Mallory Beach. Well, Miss Seckinger testified under oath and said that she had confronted Mr. Murdoch on the morning of June 7, 2021, about missing funds from the client disbursements and settlements account. But the conversation was cut short, apparently, because one of uh, Mr. Murdoch's uh, family members, his brother, called him and said that his father was in hospice care, according to the witness, and then the conversation ended. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, affectionately known as SLED, says that Mr. Murdoch called 911 at 10.07 p.m. the evening at which time he said he discovered his wife and son near the dog kennels outside of their 1,700-acre um, hunting compound. Now, the prosecutors revealed last month the video evidence apparently shows Mr. Murdoch was with Maggie and Paul at around 8.44 p.m. Despite his insistence, he was visiting his father at the time of the murders. Prosecutors in the murder case have said that evidence shows Murdoch firing his car and leaving at 9.06 p.m. And Murdoch did not call 911 to report the deaths for an hour after the homicides. Now, during the seven-minute 911 call, Murdoch is heard telling an emergency dispatcher his wife and child have been shot and that neither of them are breathing. He said, quote, I've been up to it now. It's bad, Murdoch said, while the dogs barked in the background. Now, Murdoch is set to stand trial on the double homicide in January. He's also facing 80 criminal charges after allegedly swindling millions of dollars from his former clients and his law firm partners. The now disbarred lawyer is also facing a set of charges for allegedly trying to stage his own murder so his only surviving son, Buster, would inherit his $10 million life insurance policy. And apparently Mr. Murdoch screwed that up too. So obviously we give Mr. Murdoch as well as everyone that we talk about here in Crime Talk the presumption of innocence unless and until they plead guilty or are convicted by a jury of their peers. I, I just keep coming back to it, ladies and gentlemen. One of the 12 undeniable truths from a criminal defense attorney. Everything I've learned, I'm telling you, 12 undeniable truths. Great video. You should go watch it. But one of the undeniable truths is it's always about the money. And this case is turning all about the money. He was estranged from his wife, the son that was probably going to bankrupt him. What a coincidence. The uh, wife that was going to leave him that was wanting an accounting as to their finances and the son that was probably going to result in all of his financial fraud schemes coming about coincidentally just happened to be at that uh, particular residence that night that no one was really scheduled to be at. And the wife even sent text messages saying, I'm suspicious he's trying to do something. <laughs> what a coincidence. That's right. We'll have to wait and see. All right. Let's hear a word from our sponsor of today's show. Like many Americans, we got a dog during the pandemic, Miss Winnie the Bulldog. Now, Miss Winnie has grown accustomed to being around us all the time. When we were leaving the house, Winnie would have extreme anxiety, so we decided to look for natural products to help with her anxiety. We looked for the highest quality CBD treats, and we were not satisfied. So we created a high quality CBD product that absorbs faster. Baked in Colorado, CBD treats and beverage enhancers are made with nanotechnology. The nanotechnology makes the CBD extraction more pure, also allows for Baked in Colorado products to work faster. Baked in Colorado products can help reduce your pet's anxiety and help with your dog's skin 
skin problems. Go to our online store and see what Baked in Colorado product is best for your dog. When you order at bakedincolorado.com, enter code WINNIE and receive 15% off your first order. If your dog does not experience the desired results in 30 days, return the product and we will refund your money. No questions asked. All right, we're back. More hearings in the Lori Vallow, Chad DeBell matter. As we told you the day before and yesterday, that's right, there were hearings scheduled in the Lori Vallow matter yesterday in regards to her competency. No word that she showed up in court yesterday because normally we can see video of the defendants coming and going into the courthouses there. She wasn't there. What does that normally mean? It means a report was probably sent, and the report said not competent to proceed. We're going to need a little more time to fix her up. But, of course, no one's in, uh, entitled to know any of that information exactly because why would the court want the truth to get out there? Otherwise, you can just have people speculate, pontificate as to what they think is going on. By God, we don't want the truth. There's nothing private or personal about whether somebody's competent or not. Sure, the information... I've done lots of hearings over the years where competency has been an issue. Sure, we don't distribute the report to everybody and say, Judge, we got the report. Uh, everybody agrees the person's competent or not competent. Uh, judge, they found that the person was competent, so we want a hearing uh, before the court. I mean, what kind of great secret has been revealed there? Zero, zip, nada, nilch. Apparently in Idaho, though, they really protect one's privacy. So like I said, I'm going on a chain, I'm going on a limb here, but uh, I think nothing's changed in her situation. And then there was also the hearing today as it relates to Chad DeBell in regards to the severance issue. Now we've previously brought you a video regarding the motion to continue. And in that motion to continue, it was very specific as to the reasons why the court should grant a continuance so that the counsel can be up to speed and be effective assistance of counsel, but also the fact why they wanted severance. And the motion for the severance was that, well, it's the same thing that I've been saying since this case originally started, was that was that uh, Chad DeBell needs to blame Lori Vallow and her now deceased brother, Alex Cox. They're the ones that did it. I had no idea they were doing it. I had no idea until we got arrested. That's how bad it was. Or maybe if I knew something afterwards, I was scared because, listen, this lady's dangerous. Everyone around her winds up dead, right? So we previously discussed that motion for severance that Mr. Pryor had filed on behalf of Chad DeBell. It's pretty simple. Inconsistent theory of defenses. Lori Vallow did it. Her brother did it. Giving me a separate trial. There's going to be lots of information that is going to be totally against Lori Vallow. It would be unfair for me to present that evidence against her. So just generally when it comes to severance, when two or more defendants are jointly indicted or in the same information for any offense and there is material evidence not relating to reputation, which is admissible against one or some of them, which is not admissible against all of them if they are tried separately, and which is prejudicial to those against whom it is not admissible. Those against whom such evidence is admissible shall be tried separately. The word shall, that doesn't mean discretionary. It means mandatory. Shall be tried separately upon motion of any of those against whom the evidence is not admissible. In all other cases, defendants jointly prosecuted shall be tried separately or jointly in the discretion of the court. So this section is mandatory when it appears that the defendant 
would be prejudiced on a joint trial by the admission of evidence which would not be admissible against him, but which would be competent evidence as against the co-defendant. A defendant is entitled to severance of trial as a matter of right if there is evidence that is admissible against one, but not all of the parties, and if the evidence is prejudicial to the defendant against whom the evidence is not admissible. And the Supreme Court has stated that this generally means that the trial court must determine whether the admitted evidence was so inherently prejudicial that the jury could not have limited it to its proper purpose. When does this normally come into play? Well, when, say, for example, a defendant has given a statement or confessed that is obviously admissible against that particular defendant, and then you have another co-defendant saying, I didn't do it, well, it's prejudicial against the co-defendant who didn't give any statements to have the statement of a co-defendant, a co-conspirator coming in against them. Well, Supreme Court says you can't do that. Separate trials, whether you like it or not. Like I said, it gets a little trickier if there's a conspiracy alleged, as there is here in the case against Lori Vallow and Chad Day Bell. And if I were the attorney, I would be asking for what they refer to as an 801D2E proffer. That's right. Under the rules of evidence, under 801D2E, the government has to be able to show that a conspiracy existed and not just think that there's a conspiracy. They actually have to show how they're going to establish it. And then statements made in furtherance of the conspiracy come in, not as hearsay, but as admissions. It's non-hearsay because they're made in furtherance of the conspiracy. But the defense should be asking, saying, Make, give me this proffer so I can know what statements are going to be made, who's going to be offering them into court, under what theory they're coming in, and then the court can decide whether it's in furtherance of the conspiracy or not. Not everything is in furtherance of a conspiracy. So it gets very, very tricky indeed. In this particular case, I think there is enough evidence for inconsistent theories of defenses. The court should sever the cases. Why would this not be severed, in my humble opinion, is because the judge listens to the DA and they keep crying foul that it's too expensive to do this trial twice and it's inconvenient to everybody, etc. blah, 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 blah. Go try the case, okay? I know the prosecution wants to do one trial and it's always about the money, how expensive it is to do two trials. Put on your big prosecutor pants and go do two trials if you have to. This case should be severed or guess what? It is another appellate issue if Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow are found guilty. All the appellate courts have to find is it should have been severed. You have to go do it again, you know, three, five years later down the road. Why risk it? Just give them their fair trial and then convict them. Next on the docket, a disappointing story, but like everyone, we give them the presumption of innocence. A founding member of the Adventures with Purpose, that's right, that search and recovery dive team that recently found the missing teen Kylie Rodney, the one that drove her car into the lake, has been accused of some serious crimes against children. So the state of Utah filed charges against Jarek Lisek on November 3rd for incidents that allegedly took place back in 1992. Lasik was apparently 17 years old at the time, and he's been charged with two offenses against a child. Now, according to the filing documents, the victim was 9 to 10 years old, 
and a relative of Mr. Lasik at the time. Now, Ventures for Purpose was founded in Oregon back in 2019 as a volunteer team that uses sonar and divers to help solve missing persons cases. Like I said, we give him the presumption of innocence, and I hope that that's not true because they were doing some good work. hate to see a good organization get tarnished by something a member did. All right, next on the docket, some people say, Scott, why do you sound so jaded uh, at humanity? Let me give you an example why. We've talked about this case when it first came down, but a former chemistry high school teacher in Ohio already facing state charges is now accused federally of exploiting minors. Justin Robert Foley allegedly hid cameras to record images going up skirts and shorts of girls in public places, including at the high school where he was a teacher, where he had worked since 2013. The uh, police department received a tip in August from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children about images uh, that were uploaded via Google accounts uh, that went by the name of Nasty Boy Reginald, which was a Gmail account, and J Foley Science, another Gmail account. And allegedly it contained numerous images of inappropriate nature. Let's just leave it at that. Now, the feds allege that the uh, videos recovered from the Nasty Boy Reginald account appeared to have been taken in a school setting and were attempts to film up the skirts of young females. Now, Foley allegedly admitted during an interview with law enforcement at the scene that he used the Gmail accounts um, at the center of the investigation. See, the police needed to get them to say that. Just telling you. Well, Mr. Foley reportedly uh, also stated that he thought he had, that Google had shut down both accounts because of inappropriate images regarding uh, some models that were uh, in a file sharing link. Yeah, that's his story and he's sticking to it. Anyway, Mr. Foley also then went on to admit that he created some voyeuristic recordings of females, including some attempts to look up skirts. Yeah, real nice guy. Teaching your kids. In addition, Mr. Foley admitted to creating similar videos in the classroom and the hallway of the school where he taught these young kids. The defendant then allegedly pointed investigators to an iPhone and laptops and an external hard drive that apparently yielded tens of thousands of videos and images. Specifically, many screenshots of videos which depicted Foley utilizing his cell phone to capture videos of females' private parts under their skirts. Now, two Jane Doe victims, both under 15, have been identified. Just telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you wonder why I become a little cynical some days, maybe lose your hope in humanity. It's because of teachers like Mr. Foley out there, okay? Just remember, who's teaching your kids, ladies and gentlemen? Do you really know? Okay, how about a shameless plug? That's right. Go to crimetalksearch.com, get that background subscription service, check somebody out, you just never know. And then finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Manika Garner. She pled no contest to disorderly conduct in connection with her brutal attack last year on a former neighbor. Apparently Garner was originally charged with assault and uh, she received a 30-day suspended jail sentence and was placed on probation for a year. And she was also ordered to pay $155 in fines. Ms. Garner apparently went to the uh, Walmart in um, South Euclid when she uh, encountered the victim, Precious Jackson, who was shopping with her seven-year-old daughter. 
Garner was, of course, accompanied by her five-year-old son, because that's a good way to show the kids how to act in public. Keep listening. Well, Miss Jackson, who had lived downstairs from Miss Garner in a University Heights duplex, had previously secured a protection order against her neighbor. So cops say that when Garner confronted Jackson at the Walmart uh, potato chip aisle, she threatened to beat her up and her daughter. Garner then allegedly uh, pulled down Jackson's face mask and attempted to spit on her. When the spit missed the target, Miss Garner did the next logical thing. She reached into Jackson's cart and removed the $22 meat log. Look at that meat log there. Cops described the tube of ground beef as a blunt object. Investigators charged Garner because Garner struck Jackson a couple of times in the face with a 10-pound log of prepackaged ground beef. Garner was arrested on the scene and relatives subsequently took custody of her son. It's reported that the meat blows did not injure Miss Jackson. Thank God that meat was thawed and not frozen. We could have had a real tragedy in our head. But, you know, there's an example of some good parenting going on right there. Got to teach those kids early once and for all. You don't let anybody confront you in the potato chip aisle where you've got a restraining order against them. No, you carry out on those threats. Just kidding. Just kidding. That was a joke. Don't do that. How about we just get along? All right? Get along. All right. Thanks for watching. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time on Crime Talk.